There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is James Dudley. Jim Dudley has extensive experience as a practitioner in law enforcement and criminal justice in San Francisco. A 32-year veteran of the San Francisco Police Department, he has served in the ranks as a patrol officer, sergeant, inspector, lieutenant, captain, commander, and deputy chief. He served in all bureaus, including airport, administration, special operations, homeland security, investigations, and patrol operations. He holds a Master of Applied Science degree in criminology and social ecology from UC Irvine, He's a graduate of the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. James Dudley is in his 11th year as a criminal justice lecturer at his alma mater, San Francisco State. Jim Dudley, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. No, it's a pleasure to have you here. And, and thank you for your service before, before we get into the conversation. So, Jim, I have to start with a San Francisco question. Across the country, we hear all sorts of stories about how dangerous San Francisco is. Stores are closing because of rampant crime, homeless people on the street. Is the problem being exaggerated in the media by politicians for their own purposes and on social media, or is it really as bad as it sounds? Well, that's a great question, Chris, but I think if the politicians were using it for uh, to advance their own careers, they're doing it the wrong way. I think, if anything, they should be doing more to apply uh, resources towards the problems, but unfortunately, we've seen this uh, offender as victim narrative uh, being portrayed um, throughout the criminal justice system from uh, the district attorney, former district attorney's uh, policies on prosecutions uh, in the support of our own board of supervisors. And we've had comments by the mayor all the way up through the governor. And uh, COVID was just the, the sort of linchpin to bring it all crashing down. And what's the cause of what seems to be an escalation of crime and homelessness there? Is it what you just talked on? And what's the impact been on the public in general, and more importantly, in first responders in particular? Yeah, you know, it's it dates back more than a decade. I mean, 2011, uh, the state of California was sued by a couple of prisoners, uh, and the courts came out and essentially told California, if you don't relieve the overcrowding in the California prisons... 32 prisons, uh, over 137% maximum capacity. Uh, the Essentially, the court said, if you don't handle this yourself, we will come in and tell you what to do, and we'll start releasing prisoners. So the strategy then was to go backwards and come up with uh, Assembly Bill 109 realignment, which essentially categorized prisoners, uh, started releasing older prisoners, prisoners who uh, served most of their sentences, and then also pushed back some of the responsibility onto the counties rather than the state carrying the whole burden. So in the past, a county prosecutor or a city district attorney could prosecute for state felonies and essentially 
be absolved of the responsibility if if that person was convicted of a felony and then sent to state prison. So the burden would be on the state taxes rather than the counties where we're sending the criminals from. So one of the strategies was to put the onus back on the counties and say, hey, if you really want to keep these people, we're going to extend misdemeanors uh, from one year up to three years. When we start releasing some of these felony prisoners from state prison, we're going to give it back to the counties and say, if you really think these people are uh, a harm or a threat to your county, then you have the option of keeping them in county jails. So you can imagine what the pushback was. Uh, there, there weren't a lot of people selected for the county incarceration. So essentially they were freed on the streets. And that those were you know, several thousands um, from 2011 to 2014 when Proposition 47 uh, came into play. And it was uh, pushed onto the voters as a safe neighborhoods, safe schools initiative. And if you walk into the ballot box, Chris, I'm sure you, you like me, would push the button. Yes, of course, we want safe neighborhoods, safe schools. But essentially, it took all of our personal possession of uh, narcotics, any drug, and uh, re- re- reframed it from felony to a misdemeanor status, less than one year in county jail as opposed to a state prison sentence. And then we took a bunch of the felony uh, theft crimes, reduced them uh, by raising the bar from a $400 distinguished amount from a felony from $400 and raised the threshold to $950. So that set forth uh, the domino effect of thefts from around a person. So in the past, if you're doing work on your laptop at a cafe, somebody comes up, grabs your laptop and runs off with it. That's a felony theft from your person. Uh, Your handbags over the back of your chair at a restaurant, somebody snatches it. Those kinds of things, unless those laptops or phones or purses were worth over $950, they went down to misdemeanors. Theft of a gun from a a locked uh, trunk of a car, felony to misdemeanor, so on and on and on. And and I'm sure you understand that the priorities of law enforcement and the priorities of the district attorney are aimed at the higher violent crimes, the felony crimes, and then misdemeanors fly at or below the radar. So you can imagine the resources put forth uh, drop down. And now if you look, and, and this is what I tell my students in my criminal justice classes, if you were to compare 2012 felony crimes in California to 2022 felony crimes in California, you'd see, wow, we did something great. We've dropped felonies off the map. What did we do? We were so successful. All we did was rename them. But essentially, those felonies that were reduced to misdemeanors never got prosecuted because they they weren't worth anyone's time. And at one point in California, I believe it was one one judge who sat on the um, the lower level misdemeanor and infraction crimes, the public nuisance crimes, if you will, littering, drinking, urinating in public, even prostitution. Uh, one judge wiped off. 35,000 cases in one day said, we're not going to deal with them. And 
imagine 35,000 cases, if you only put one hour of time into each of those cases, which probably many more hours than that, uh, what is that, what's the message to law enforcement? You just spend all that time processing all these citations, sometimes misdemeanor bookings, and now they're gone. So, yeah, you know, the perception of the public is, well, it doesn't matter. The police should still do their job. They should still go forward. They should still go through the machinations of all these things. When in reality, when the governor and the mayors and the supervisors and the city councils all say, we don't want you to do these things. We're actually going to start striking some of these things off the books. What's the message to law enforcement? They're going to focus their attention elsewhere. And, and there are, there are, other issues like police commissions telling law enforcement, we're going to take away some of your force uh, tools. We're going to tell you to limit your ability to stop cars for low level license plates like crack or low level um, uh, offenses like uh, license plates, cracked windshields, turn signals, license plate lights, all these other things. And that is a ripple effect down to what you're seeing and hearing about in San Francisco today. And that's an absolute shame because I shared with you before, you know, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco in business and over the five or seven years I was going back and forth to really see a dramatic and drastic change. I forget which hotel I was at, but across the street was a park filled with tents, people sleeping there. Um, and just going back to your point about the, the overcrowdedness. So rather than the state of California or a specific county issue municipal bonds, create an investable opportunity to build new infrastructure, to create jobs, to build prisons, to transfer that 137% population into other facilities. They just took a red pen and reduced everything. Yeah. In fact, our current, uh, current <laughs> then mayor, our current governor, uh, when he took office, he said, we are moratorium on, uh, prisons. We're not going to build another one while I'm in office. And he also wiped out the death penalty, which was, he put a moratorium on the death penalty because he couldn't go against the will of the voters who the same year he was elected affirmed the decision to continue with the death penalty in California. But under his um, reign as governor, we're never going to see a, an execution carried out. And, and given these looser restrictions, I'll say, or laws, not sure if you know the answer, but are you? What is California seeing from a population boom or bust? Are people coming in because it's easier to get away with stuff, or are people leaving because of what's happening? Well, I think you know, COVID again is that wild card where, when people went to work remotely, um, you know, that went on for nine months or nearly a year. And a lot of people have been reluctant to go back to the office. Um, we're seeing more and more vacant office buildings. We've seen some major uh, organizations and um, retail establishments leave San Francisco. Um, you, you have major corporations like Target talking about their, you know, millions and millions of dollars of losses. Uh, you have policies that contribute to some of the the wanton theft, and uh, you know un until it's highlighted and until the the local politicians feel the heat from these viral videos, um, do they finally allow law enforcement to do their job, go after these people? There are those who argue that we need to cut back on police budgets and put more social workers on the street. 
Is that really a realistic solution? Well, you know, Chris, I think for the past, I don't know, I, I started uh, my, my career in policing in 1980, and uh, it coincided with so many awful things, including major drug use and robberies and crime violence. If you look at the 1990s, those were sort of the, the watermark of the high watermark of felony crimes in California and um, really busy time. So hardly had any room for any other ancillary services. Well, since that time, uh, police have been burdened with so many uh, social issues of homelessness and mental health issues and uh, dealing with all these other issues. I think any chief would be happy to give away some of these ancillary duties, like dealing with the mental health issues. And I think we're starting to see that. We're starting to see um, agencies going to, if not partnering with social services in going out in teams. And San Francisco, I think we're doing it with the fire department now, fire department, EMS, and they had social service um, counselors and therapists go out and approach people on the street. I think that's awesome. Because in the past, Law enforcement is the visual arm of government, riding around in patrol cars, in uniforms. Anybody could flag you down. You get immediate relief when you call 911. Somebody's going to go. So now, also since COVID and also since uh, George Floyd in 2020, we saw vast numbers of law enforcement officers leaving the job, transferring to other smaller agencies, rural agencies, leaving major metropolitan uh, areas like New York and San Francisco and St. Louis and Detroit and Seattle across the board. So through attrition, the numbers are down. Recruitment is tough. And so you have fewer, fewer police on the street, but you have the same number of calls for service and the same obligation. So to bring in civilian arms of trained professionals you know, we, we'd have to go back to pre-Reagan era before we saw that, where someone else handled those calls. But, I mean, right now, the response, you know, you'll hear people talk about the war on drugs and how law enforcement is all over the war on drugs. I got to tell you, we handed the car keys of the war on drugs over to public health a decade ago. And since then, we've seen overdoses climb. Of course, there's the introduction of fentanyl and uh, opiates, and some of them, you, you know, the opiate story. Well, the the main tool in law enforcement officers' uh, war on drugs is Narcan or Naloxone, and they're, they're saving lives of people that are passed out unconscious on the streets. So the main tool is not the arrest, but it's the issuance of Narcan or Naloxone to these people who are literally dying on the streets. You mentioned, mentioned George Floyd a moment ago. George Floyd just over three. George Floyd died just over three years ago on May twenty fifth, twenty twenty, with a knee of a Minneapolis police officer on his neck. Sadly, we know he wasn't the first black man killed by a white officer. Why do you think George Floyd's death was such a watershed event? Yeah, I think we had others leading up to it. Um, I think you had Eric Garner in, in New York, and you had other situations where the public started to weigh 
the offense versus the use of force used. And the George Floyd incident was viral video. You had a white officer on a black man in the street. Uh, and then the offense was for passing a $20 counterfeit bill. So I think the, the public sees all that. And then they see this guy with a knee on the back or the neck of uh, George Floyd in the street for nine minutes. And, you know, most people will just watch a snippet of that. But if you watch for nine minutes and you hear the urging of the crowd and you see the faces of the other officers, a couple of them trainees under uh, the main officer, um, more issues like uh, duty to intervene came out as a policy where these other officers should have said, hey, wait a minute. He's in handcuffs. He's restrained. We're waiting for EMS. Let us sit him up. Let us take care of him. And I think, you know, what the public doesn't realize, especially in situations where you're trying to restrain a resisting individual or you're chasing someone and you finally catch them, you've got all this adrenaline built up and you've got this um, sometimes animosity build up. That's where someone else needs to step in and say, okay, I've got it from here. And that didn't happen. And I think that was one of the main sticking points in the eye of the public. And the response was huge, as you saw. Does there need to be more citizen oversight of law enforcement? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's the right balance between citizen oversight, elected officials, ensuring that law enforcement isn't too heavy-handed and is doing a good job, professional law enforcement doing its job, without people who don't understand the job meddling. Yeah. <laughs> well, meddling is, is, is a tough word. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to the, the main part of the question is, should police have more uh, civilian oversight? And I do not believe so. I think most agencies have some sort of relationship with a civilian review board, or at least from their legislative review. I think part of the biggest problem is that there's a disconnect after a situation where you have at-will police chiefs that are not so willing to go out and confront what may be a false narrative about the situation. And I think that mystery that looms about explaining use of force and policy and procedure and what led up, instead, we may see a snippet of a video, one-sided two-dimensional at best, and then a narrative that goes forward from there. You don't have chiefs rushing up to a podium to say, hold on, not so fast. Uh, it, this is what really happened. Um, they can't, for a lot of reasons, ongoing investigations, litigation, administrative investigations, possible discipline, possible training issues. And they don't gather all that information immediately. That's a process of investigators and sometimes teams of investigators, uh, dist district attorneys or civilian oversight groups working with police to do these investigations, coroners, toxicology, all these other things, right? So I think the disservice comes from not being able to confront these issues and put the real narrative out there. I mean, we can go back to Ferguson where this false narrative was portrayed and it, there was no pushback for at least a month. But in that time you had 
professional sports players standing up, hands up, don't shoot. You had newscasters, sportscasters, people in government standing up, hands up, don't shoot. When we found out later, that wasn't the case. But you had no one from uh, a law enforcement agency standing up and saying, wait a second. You know, we talked to uh, everyone involved and we have DNA um, from in the interior of Officer Clark's car. We have uh, the witness who was the associate of of the individual at Ferguson who recants their story and, and tells a different narrative. And that, that doesn't get portrayed. I mean, if you did a, a survey right now, uh, you'd have people telling you about Ferguson that it, it was as originally portrayed. And nobody, nobody looks to, to see that little retraction at the bottom of a newspaper. And I didn't see anybody jumping on the news to say, hey, you know what? We actually kind of got it wrong. And this is what really happened. We don't see that. And so as long as you let that narrative float out there in the ether and in the social media, where most young people get their news today, that, that clings and that becomes the true narrative. Well, to your point, how sad is it that that isn't going to be recanted? Then when it's not going to sell newspapers, it won't sell social media ads. It's a very unfortunate state of society today. Typically, after an incident such as an officer-involved shooting, the protocol is to release as little information as possible, ostensibly to preserve the integrity of the investigation. But at the same time, that approach seems to create a great deal of mistrust, speculation, and false rumors. Is there a better way of handling those situations from a transparency standpoint, or are we stuck with the way things are? Yeah, I mean, just just like what I just said, I think chiefs need to get out in front of these things and at least say, look, aside from this case, these are the protocols we follow. And students in my class, I see the aha moments all the time when I explain Things like, um, you know, the time reaction, an officer's reaction, uh, the protocols, the objective reasonableness of use of force, all these concepts that aren't out there. I mean, I think if, if you ask, if you did a questionnaire, most people would say they believe in crime, show, crime shows and podcasts and movies and TV. And that's where they get, <laughs> you know, I joke with other uh, law enforcement people about you know, these chasing people and reading them the Miranda uh, <laughs> rights while they're chasing them or, um, you know, saying these uh, things like, uh, you know, they're secretively clearing a, a building and they're walking by doors and just yelling out clear without looking in the rooms. I mean, all of those things are just awful. And, and cops laugh at those when they see them. But those ring true to people, you know, who don't know inside baseball. So I think chiefs do need to get out in front, whether they address the incident directly or indirectly. I think we've seen some courageous chiefs stand up at the podium and, and state the facts. And some of them don't survive in, in their job long, but some do. And I think leadership is what cops need most today. They need to know that the chief is is the focal point of the organization who should stand up and answer those questions and not send sacrificial lambs up to the podium instead. And I think when it comes down to it, we've settled 
in I, I know you know numerous cases in California and on the West Coast, we've settled cases where the cops did nothing wrong. So if you're going to settle and give payouts, then you might as well risk the litigation by talking about the truth about what really happened. And we've had cases recently where police have been charged in cases where they're chasing a carjacker who jumps out of the car and runs at the car. Uh, they, they face charges for firing on a burglar, a home invasion burglar who they spot on the street. He's got a bottle of booze that he starts beating one of the officers over the head with um, chasing, chasing around the car. The officer fires at the individual. Our former district attorney dropped charges on the individuals, gave payouts to them or their families, and then sought charges against police officers, the police officers in those cases. And thankfully, in of the five cases, I believe that that former district attorney charged, at least three of those cases resulted in drop charges in one case that went to trial, um, absolved the officer of wrongdoing in a case where he responded to domestic violence. Given the rise of a never-ending news cycle and social media and body cams, and I think we've, we know the answer to this already, has it gotten much more difficult being a police officer from a security perspective? Yeah, you know, I, I think the, the body cam experiment, right? A decade ago, we talked about body cams on police officers and you had critics of law enforcement saying, aha, this is where we catch them. And I think in reality, if you look at the studies of body cams, you'll see that um, instead uh, they helped officers defend themselves in cases. Uh, right now, it's, it's, uh, it's a hot potato topic of do officers uh, get an option or an opportunity to review body cam footage before they write a police report? Some agencies allow it, some do not. And from my perspective, like anything else related to a crime, it's a piece of evidence and the officer should be able to look at the evidence. And of course, the critics are saying that the officers would probably craft their narrative based on what they're seeing on the, the video. But like I say, if, if you could review a uh, footage from a security camera and other uh, media, then why not be able to use what's coming from the chest of the responding officer. I mean, the downside is you're only getting that perspective. And de depending on what's happening, you may just see garbled footage while the officer is wrestling with the subject. So you don't see that he's reaching for the officer's gun or that he's pulling out a weapon of some sort. And it's almost like Major League Baseball now, where when, when some of the footage is slowed down, we've seen... Um, you know, in some cases where uh, an individual is turning and shooting and then, you know, the, the news report says he was shot in the back. Yeah, because he's shooting over his shoulder or the fact that they're throwing a weapon that was found under a car later. And so in a lot of ways, I'd say in the majority of time, the body cams have helped um, uh, defend the officer's narrative of what happened. And the other times, hey, Cops don't like bad cops either. So in the cases where they're caught and there's evidence and they're prosecuted, I don't believe anyone has a problem with that. 
I think the, the biggest problem and the biggest hit to law enforcement morale is when you see officers doing their job or doing what, what they perceive in reaction to a, what they perceive as a threat, that they're being disciplined, fired, or criminally prosecuted. We've been talking to Jim Dudley, and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Jim Dudley, a 32 year veteran of the San Francisco Police Department. He holds a Master of Applied Science degree in Criminology and Social Ecology from UC Irvine. He's a graduate of the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And he's in his 11th year as a criminal justice lecturer at his alma mater, mater, San Francisco State. Police and firefighters are both first responders. When I was a kid, both police and firefighters were heroes. Today, it's a little different. It seems like the firefighters are the heroes, and the police are all too often portrayed differently. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, if you look, if you look to the parents of, of kids, they will point out a fire engine and say, you know, there they go. They're going to help someone. They're going to go put out a fire. They're going to rescue someone. They're pulling a cat out of a tree, all of that. Right. And what's the narrative 
or law enforcement. Um, see that officer over there? If you don't listen to mom, that guy's going to come over and arrest you, right? We're seen as a threat. And I'll tell you, whenever anyone's tried that on me, I've gone over to the kid, kneel down and say, you know, in a, in a, cordial way that's not true police are your friends if you ever get lost you ever need help we are there for you pull a sticker out of my pocket give them a a sfpd sticker and try to chat them up a little bit and sometimes the parent looks a little bit you know embarrassed about the idea and i'm that's my hope and and i wish we had that narrative back when i thought about a career, I didn't think that going into a building on fire was a great idea, but I did have some positive interactions with police officers as a kid. Um, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, maybe 10, my bike was stolen from behind our house. And my mom said, well, call, call the police. So I called the police number, looked out the window, the police officer showed up and my mom says, okay, we'll go tell him what happened. I said, well, it's the cop. Don't you want to go talk to him? She said, no, you do it. And so oh, I ran out there ex- expecting to be dismissed. And instead, this San Francisco police officer was just not condescending at all, treated me with respect. He was, he was you know, very affable. And uh, we talked about my stolen bike. I don't even know if he made a police report, but... I felt really good that he treated me the way he did. And from then I from then on I saw, you know, police in in a good light. Um through high school I took um youth in the law classes and I always had an idea that I wanted to work outdoors. I wanted to not sit behind a desk but work freely and do some problem solving and I got into um uh, the reserves in the county that I lived in at the time. And I remember uh, being at the at a lieutenant's house having lunch. And uh, he told me, law enforcement is a great job. It's exciting. You'll do all kinds of different things that people don't normally do. And as far as uh, a job, you'll never get rich, but you'll never go hungry. And that stuck with me because I came up from a single mom, six kids, uh, on the poor side of the scale in San Francisco. And for me, that was important as well. So I went into the career and it's been my goal to uh, not be a, a blind advocate of law enforcement, but to be able to explain to people uh, what I've seen, to give back to a career that's been so good and rewarding to me and my family. And going back to your original question, why fire and not police as, as heroes? Well, um, back in the early eighties when, or maybe seventies when San Francisco PD was talking about going on strike and there was a huge contention that I think when I got my job, I was making $19,000 a year as a policeman. Um, there was a bumper sticker fire came up with that said, we fight fires, not people. And I think that is an image that sticks in the mind of the public, that the police are arresting people. When you call 911, it's usually because something bad happened. Somebody's hurt. Something's broken. Something's stolen. Uh, And so that's in the psyche of people who call 911. And then for for the others, 
who never have uh, interactions with law enforcement, probably the only other interaction you're going to have is when you're on the road and you look in your rearview mirror and you see red lights, red and blue lights flashing. And I'll tell you, my pulse goes up when I see that as well. So I get it. But, um, you know, when I, whenever I lecture or do a presentation, I ask cops in the room, how many of you have ever saved a life? And you'll see a couple of hands go up, but I like to point out everyone in the room has saved a life. If they've pulled someone over for seatbelt violation or a helmet violation or a kid jumping around in a car, not in a car seat, uh, responding to calls for service, making an arrest in a domestic violence situation, all those things, you know, if, if we looked at sort of the broken windows um, uh, view of a situation, if you stop those low-lying offenses, maybe you're not responding to a child death in an auto accident or somebody flying through a windshield of a car or a domestic violence death that happened because the perpetrator was allowed to remain in the home. So I think, I think we're, we're short sold on what we do in a prevention mode. And I, I was just recently on a debate on social media of do police actually prevent crime? And the answer is resoundingly yes. And there's so many studies that show the effects of law enforcement hotspot policing, place-based crime policing, crime maps, Comstat, all those things. If you ask any cop in any city to name the five hotspots where crime happens in their city, they know them offhand. If you were to say, hey, I'm going to the, your city, where should I not go after 10 p.m.? They could give you the five places not to go. So I think we've seen the studies, we've seen some of the operations Operation Ceasefire in Boston is a great example that shows that police just can't do it alone. You've got to have data. You've got to have a multi-agency response. You've got to bring in all the stakeholders, schools, homes, families, um, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, uh, public health, everyone involved in the situation, gather the data, and then come up with a multi agency response. Can't do it alone. I had a chief tell me we can't arrest our way out of crime. And he was so true. We cannot arrest our way out of crime. But there are some things that we can do to make places better, to show them people care, to clean them up, and then hand them over to the communities and say, this is yours. Call us if you need us, but maintain it. Easier to maintain after you've built it up than let it go back to seed and then go try back to, to resurrect it again. How are law enforcement students different from the days that you were at the Academy as a rookie cop and has training kept up with the times such as the differences with Gen Z and the baby boomer generation? Yeah, this is a different generation for sure. Um, I remember applying for the police department in 1979 and I went to go apply in person because that's the way you did it. Then you filled out the form and handed it in. And there was a line around the hall of justice, several hundred deep. And I stood in line and I waited. The line was longer than when the first star Wars came out. 
And I filled out the uh, application, handed it in, and waited and waited and waited. And that's the way it was, right? Because you had so many applicants for so few job offerings. Well, now it's the opposite, right? In my uh, academy, there were um, 30 of us. The other academy classes, there were 50. And we had three going always, overlapping by two weeks at the end of a cycle, two weeks to go, and then a new class started. And we probably had trained 200 or so officers every year. Now, the last academy class for SFPD, I believe, had nine graduates. And so that's something that's happening across the country. I've got to think that, you know, the the confluence of 2020 really put a dent in recruiting. We saw a lead up to it probably a decade before. Uh, there were so many other opportunities, employment opportunities and tech and social media and things like that. In teaching, I see students that are really struggling. Uh, I think in 2020, uh, economically, they were hit. Um, mental health, um, they were hit. Uh, like I said, they're getting a lot of their information on social media. It's so confusing. It is so there's such a dichotomy out there today, um, depending on which news station or which social media you're looking at. What's true anymore? Um, it's difficult to say. But I think today's recruit um, or candidates, they want more personal time. They want to help the community. We've seen it in survey after survey. They want to change. They want to help the community but they want to balance life and work. They want time off. They want to work fewer hours. They love the idea of benefits. I think, I think we're going to see a turnaround in the next, you know, five years or so where they're going to figure out that these gig economy, it's great to be able to, to drive um, a, a car like an Uber or a Lyft um, and pick your own hours and pick your own assignments and, you know, work three hours in the morning, go to school, work three hours in the evening. But they're going to see long-term uh, the limited health benefits, the limited salary, the limited retirement. There is no retirement. Um, and they're going to see that policing is changing. And I think once we get the word out, and and law enforcement has to make that paradigm shift too. And Janae Gasparini, PhD, cop, works for SUNY. Uh, she's a teacher, professional professor. We're working on a project right now to approach Gen Z learners, how we can uh, attract them more to law enforcement, how we can train them better, more hands-on. Uh, they want to ask questions why, they want to understand how things work, as opposed to back in my day where there was a guy standing at the podium and told you, this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to have a test Friday. And you better go find the answers somewhere else. Now we're doing practice tests. We're giving out scenarios, scenario-based training in academies and in um, uh, professional, continuing professional education. We're seeing VR introduce where you can go through repetitions of scenarios. Uh, if, in my day, if we talked at all about people with mental illness or about suicide, you're showing up to a, a suicide situation, 
we might have done it once. Today, um, through virtual reality, you can have officers practice over and over and over again. And I know there are critics that say it's still not the same as real life training. But for me, it gives the individual the opportunity to think about what if something like this happened? What would I say? How can I keep talking for 20 minutes? Well, you know, Chris, for me, talking for 20 minutes is no problem at all. But for some people, it would be really tough. What do I say to somebody who's sitting on a ledge, um, who's standing on a bridge? What do I say for 20 minutes? So if, if anything else, the repetition really gets them to think about it. We talk about firearms. We talk about emergency vehicle training. That's something different where you do need some hands-on to get the feel of how uh, you know the rear end of a car slips as you're going fast around corners and things like that. Or shooting where you really need to understand how you do sight adjustments and things like that. But in other cases, I love the idea of virtual reality and it really fits with the Gen Zs who are used to that. And then teaching in short chunks in, um, you know, rather than we're going to talk about this issue for four hours, Janae and I have gone out to um, the FBI. We've gone to the National uh, School Resource Officers Training Conference, and we've put together uh, a presentation that talks about how you bring in the training that sticks and you let you let the peers teach each other. You give them opportunities to take tests and fail, but you talk them out and then it, and then you get them to come up with the real answers. And it takes repetition and it takes hands-on learning, experience-based learning and, and seeing examples. And so we're doing that more, but it's incremental. Uh, just went to a, a major national conference where we all sat in the room at the beginning. There was a guy at a podium couple of slides and that was it and you had vendors with all these gigantic wall screens and 3d video it could it could have been so much more rich and uh, entertaining and uh, to grab our attention rather than sit there with your arms folded on your lap for an hour and a half while somebody talked to us and i think we're past the stage of people talking at us and uh, I love doing the pod, my podcast, because just like you, I love talking to people, hearing ideas, asking follow-up questions that our listeners probably want to understand as well. So I think that's that's where we're going moving forward. We're not going back. And where can people find your podcast? Well, the podcast is called Policing Matters, and it's on policeone.com. We're on YouTube's now, where you can see my mug, a face... <laughs> A, a face made for radio <laughs> and um yeah we uh, we're on all mediums uh spotify apple soundcloud um you name it and um had some really good feedback from listeners i get some suggestions people saying hey i wrote a book hey we're doing something different and we talked to therapists and athletic trainers and had the gracie jujitsu family on um, talking about force issues, technology issues, drones, uh, real-time uh, information centers, dispatch, emergency response, mental health, you name it. If we haven't talked about it yet, call me and let me know, and we will. 
Well, and that's how I found Jim. And so I really encourage our listeners and viewers to, to look for it. Again, it's Policing Matters podcast on Police One and all their major podcast platforms. Jim, we've got about five minutes or so left here. There's so many factors put on a tremendous strain on law enforcement officers. A few moments ago, you touched on mental health briefly. We talk a lot now how it's okay to not be okay after a traumatic event, and it's certainly in a post-COVID world. But you also believe it's important to say it's okay to be okay. And you, you base that on your personal experience. Explain why it's okay to be okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an issue I really struggle with because I certainly understand uh, people pushing the narrative that we have to remove the stigma of seeking mental help, mental health help. And I've had a lot of people on my show talk about uh, support, not only for the individual involved in a traumatic incident, but also the friends and family of the individual to let them know what they're dealing with. And so, you know, when we talk about traumatic events, uh, a normal civilian might see four or five in their lifetime I attended a, a conference uh, segment where they put up on the board about 40 things, uh, witnessing violence, uh, violence upon you, being threatened, uh, being assaulted with a gun, with a knife, uh, seeing a dead person, seeing somebody in pain, all these things. Uh, they said, check, check a list of how many times you've seen it, even if it's the same thing multiple times. I stopped counting at over 200. And they say that Law enforcement, public safety people see these things hundreds and hundreds of times. The human brain isn't equipped to handle that kind of stress and, and repeatedly. I was involved in a shooting in 1989. Uh, individual tried to shoot me, tried to kill me and my partner. I shot him. And immediately I had peers coming up to me. Are you okay? Is everything okay? How do you feel? I went through the ringer with the investigators, the district attorney, um, the the coroner, the medical examiner. Um, I hurt my knee in wrestling with this individual. Um, I was off for about two weeks. I saw a, a psychologist in that time. And I had so many people saying, are you okay? You know, do you need help? And I'm a Catholic. I, it's wrong to take the life of another person. And uh, for me, that weighed heavily. I had trouble sleeping. All, all the things they say, it's true. Time slows down. You have these recalls of the incident over and over and over again. But over time, I realized I had a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old at home. What if it was me on the other side of this equation? And in my mind, I rationalized it and said, hey, it was a situation that I was forced into. I'm okay with it. And I think too often we hear these, we don't hear about the resilience of what, what brought you out of this. And for me, that's what I try to talk to younger officers about after a traumatic incident. It's okay. I'm here to talk, but you know, you don't have to go stand on a bridge afterwards. That's not a requirement. And I think, I don't know if that's so accepted. I want to talk more and more about resilience than I'm drunk every night. I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm going to quit. Uh, things are terrible. I think we've got to switch the narrative. Seek mental health help, but it's okay to understand what you did and be okay with it. 
not not have such such negative feelings about your own reactions. Jim, we've covered so much ground today. I'm going to have you take us to the end of our conversation. What's the most important takeaway for our audience and what should give us the most reason to be optimistic about the future of law enforcement? Public safety and law enforcement officers are human beings, just like you and me. And if you don't know one, find one, meet one. Uh, Chances are you'll meet a good one. Uh, Ask questions. And if you see an incident, ask a cop about it. Because sometimes, like I said, it's inside baseball. And you don't have the chief of an organization explaining what happened when any law enforcement officer can probably tell you what happened by what they saw on TV. And so um, my wife's in public health. I've learned so much from her and she tells me she's learned so much from me. So I think what we need to do is get more law enforcement needs to get more into the conversation. And if you are out there listening and you're not a cop, then elbow your way into that conversation with a cop And if you want to change law enforcement and public safety, then if you're young enough and you're willing, join, join an agency. And not only just as a cop, but there are so many citizens, um, CERT, uh, Citizens Emergency Response Teams. Uh, There's a, a fire component to that. You can volunteer at a law enforcement agency near you, and I'm sure they'd appreciate your help. Jim Dudley, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. No, and thank you again for your service. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with a leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.